Welcome to Ground Truth, a podcast series that explores trends and developments in environmental justice, produced in partnership with the Environmental Law Institute and Beverage and Diet. The Ground Truth series is part of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast and Beverage and Diamond, the Environmental Law podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, we are releasing an episode in the Ground Truth series from our partners at Beverage and Diamond, focused on environmental justice. Julius Red of Beverage and Diamond will lead you through most of the episode. Before he begins, allow me to provide some pertinent background information. If you heard the last Ground Truth episode, some of this introduction may sound familiar to you. Even if repetitive, it is important context for this episode, as it was that one. Environmental justice, a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice, dates back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the, quote, fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Interest and urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach, including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. In today's episode of Ground Truth, Julius Red, environmental lawyer who co-leads Beverage and Diamond's environmental justice practice, speaks with New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection Commissioner Sean LaTorette. True Ground Truth fans will recall that Commissioner LaTorette joined us for our inaugural episode, which focused on New Jersey's landmark 2020 EJ law, which had had recently been signed into law. Today, he joins us again to discuss the department's proposed implementing regulations for this law which were published in early June, 2022. Public comments will be accepted on the proposed regulations until September 4th, 2022. Welcome and thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Georgia. I am Julius Red, a shareholder in Beverage and Diamonds, Washington, DC office. I am very excited to be here today with Commissioner Sean Lauterette. With over 20 years of environmental practice, Commissioner LaTourette began his career partnering with the Aaron Brockovich Law Firm to organize and defend New Jersey communities whose drinking water was contaminated. Born and raised in the Garden State, Commissioner LaTourette has New Jersey roots through and through, having graduated with honors from both Rutgers University and Rutgers Law School. Commissioner LaTourette first joined the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection as the Chief Legal and Regulatory Policy Advisor to then Commissioner Catherine R. McCabe in 2018. In that role, he developed and led initiatives that prioritized environmental justice while facilitating greenhouse gas emissions reductions climate change resilience and adaptation, 
renewable energy development, and through many other ways. Commissioner Latourette was appointed by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy on June 14, 2021, to his current position as commissioner. In this role, he is responsible for formulating statewide environmental policy while directing programs that protect public health and ensure the quality of New Jersey's air, land, water, and natural and historic resources. Commissioner Latourette, it's so great to have you back with us again today, especially to talk about the implementation of New Jersey's environmental justice law. Last time you were here, the governor had signed the legislation and the implementing rules were in the process of being drafted. The draft rules were released, uh, publicly released in June 2020 for public comment. Broadly, can you please describe the rulemaking process and how stakeholder input was considered? First of all, thank you for having me back to talk about what I think is the most empowering environmental justice law in the country and in New Jersey. We're so incredibly proud of it. And we're duly proud of the stakeholder process that has led up to the publication of our proposal, as well as the stakeholder process to solicit the formal public comment on the rule proposal because we pursued it in the way that we intend to implement the environmental justice rules, which is to put the community first, right? Because we should never purport to speak for our environmental justice communities because they speak for themselves. We need only give the opportunity in the course of performing our work for those voices to be heard. And so that's where we started with the advanced stakeholder outreach, holding multiple sessions over nearly a year on each discrete topic of the environmental justice rules that needed to be rounded out after the legislature declared its intent and empowered DEP to pursue these rules. Excellent, and I really like how you describe giving communities the opportunity to speak for themselves. Turning to the proposed rules themselves, generally the rules would require that the department deny permit applications for new facilities where a disproportionate impact cannot be avoided except where the facility will serve a compelling public interest in that overburdened community. Could you please summarize the regulations proposed approach to defining so-called disproportionate impacts? Absolutely. We have to start, of course, with the types of facilities and permits that are covered by the environmental justice law itself. It's not every single permit that is evaluated or issued by the Department of Environmental Protection here in New Jersey. It, applies to eight types of facilities, those that are that are known and identified by the legislature as being the most highly polluting. And it has to be when those facilities are seeking certain types of permits. So for example, uh, permits to operate solid waste and recycling facilities, uh, permits 
under the Title V major sources of air pollution rules that we implement uh, based on our federal delegation as well as our own state air pollution control act. And we start with those facilities, whether they're newly developed or expanded, and whether or not that facility is proposed to be located in an overburdened community as defined by the environmental justice law. And to evaluate whether there is potential for a disproportionate impact based upon the development and operation of the proposed facility, we have to evaluate the baseline conditions in that very community and how the proposed facility or expansion would relate to those existing environmental and public health stressors and potentially exacerbate them. And we do that by evaluating what started as a list of proposed stressors for the environmental justice rule that exceeded 60 individual stressors. And during that public engagement that I mentioned with environmental justice communities, with industry, with the public writ large, we whittled that list down to 26 stressors. And those stressors that we evaluate include stressors such as ozone, the number of days above national ambient air quality standards, PM 2.5, the number of days above that standard within that proposed host community. We look at things like the number of sites per square mile that are NIGIPTES permitted. That's our implementation of the NIPTES program. The number of contaminated sites or restricted groundwater classification exception areas and many others. And we evaluate those baseline conditions through a new tool that we proposed in beta form at the same time that this rule proposal went to press. And that we call the Environmental Justice Mapping Assessment and Protection Tool, or EJMAP. And through this tool, we evaluate these stressors all based on publicly available data. And then we examine whether the stressors in this community are higher than either the state average or the average of that county, less existing overburdened communities. And we choose the lesser of the two in order to do the most protective thing. And that becomes our basis of comparison, what we call the geographic point of comparison within the rule. And that gives us a baseline to compare to. And so it's not as though we look at every single potential environmental or public health impact. We've had to define a universe to serve as that point of comparison. And that is the place from which we start. And if a community is known to be adversely stressed, we go a step beyond within the process and require the more fulsome analysis through an environmental justice impact statement. And that provides or is intended to provide the baseline information for the department 
to make its assessment of disproportionate impact. Thank you for that thorough uh, explanation of how this regulatory program is envisioned to work in practice. One of the concepts that in the proposed rules that I'm intrigued by is the compelling public interest analysis and how the department intends to go about conducting that analysis. I believe the preamble to the proposed rule explains that is intended to be a narrow exception. Could you share a few examples of what might be considered a compelling public interest under the proposed rules? Absolutely. And this was a point of consideration, quite spirited conversation within the pre-proposal stakeholdering discussions. And it is very much intended to be a narrow exception to the requirement that a new facility be denied where a disproportionate impact cannot be avoided. Because I think the important thing to understand from the first step of our analysis, once we get past the initial screening step into the environmental justice impact statement step, what we are evaluating within that point of analysis is whether an applicant has pursued measures to avoid and minimize impacts to these stressed communities. So, for example, if a proposed facility is sought to be located in a community that is adversely stressed for PM 2.5, within the Aegis process, we ask the very important question about what has this applicant done? to avoid and minimize those PM impacts to the greatest extent possible. And that question should be answered within the Aegis process. It is only when that answer still results in the determination of an adverse disproportionate impact that we would even get to the question of whether the compelling public interest exception should be evaluated. Because it's our belief that in most instances, we can work with applicants in order to avoid and minimize impacts, making the application of a narrow exception what it's supposed to be, the exception, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes a lot of sense, and I think provides a perspective that everyone may not have previously understood. And I really appreciate your articulation of the intended approach of EGIST being a process that allows the department to work with the applicant to minimize potential impacts to the overburdened community. There's actually one thing I should add. So in your question, you had asked what we envision as 
being able to satisfy a compelling public interest exception. And I want to make sure that I answer that, not only by saying that we think it will be the exception that we even have to use this exception, but that the way we've designed it has been to very clearly indicate that to be in the compelling public interest, the facility itself must primarily serve an essential environmental health or safety need of the individuals within the overburdened community. And that there are no other means that are reasonably available to meet that essential environmental health or safety need. Because what we want to be very clear about is that not only should we be able to identify avoidance and minimization measures, but that we cannot allow what has historically been the case where project applicants are confusing public interest with economic interest, right? Where we'll often be presented with a proposed facility or an application for development where as an imperative to the development, the project proponent is highlighting the potential for growth in employment, growth in tax revenue, more ephemeral notions of economic growth. That is not what is meant by compelling public interest. It is expressly in the proposed regulation not to be considered because this is part of the reason that underlies the disproportionate impacts upon environmental justice communities that already exist, where project applicants, through no ill will, are from a political, small p political perspective, trying to build support and gain leverage for a proposed facility by saying to the government, this is writ large good for the economy, so it must be good for the public. But that doesn't mean it's good for the host community. And that's the issue we really want to get at here. That is a very important, I think, clarification that I suspect many applicants don't fully appreciate. With respect to facilities that have already in operation, they have already been operating in overburdened communities for years or even decades. How do the proposed rules strike the balance of not forcing that facility to discontinue operations while still advancing the goals of environmental justice? This is another point where I want to make sure we are absolutely clear, because I think there can be confusion and potentially even fear or concern on the part of the regulated community that somehow these rules will disincentivize the good operation of compliant facilities and potentially force a facility to discontinue its operations. And that is not the case. Nothing about these rules jeopardizes 
the existing permits of any facility. What we are looking to do with respect to existing facilities upon renewal or expansion is to ensure that the best possible control technology is being used. There is not any intent within these regulations to undermine existing facilities. What we try through these regulations to achieve instead is that when we have an expansion that we ask the applicant to analyze and propose measures to avoid facility contributions to those stressors I mentioned. But for those existing facilities, we have no authority to deny. And so what we focus on, like I mentioned earlier, is that avoidance and minimization concept. I think your points about focusing on avoidance and minimization for existing covered facilities is critically important. These regulations are a huge step forward for advancing EJ in the context of facility operations, at least in the context of environmental permitting. Can you provide insight into what's next for these proposed rules? What does the roadmap to finalization look like? So right now it's July 20th, and we are in the process of holding formal public comment sessions before a hearing officer. And that process will continue to unfold in the months of July and August. And then we'll begin reviewing all of the written comments that we have received, cataloging them and responding to all of those comments. In addition, uh, to digesting the transcripts of our formal public comment hearings and responding to the comments raised therein. And it is our intention to fully complete that process by the end of this year, such that we have a rule adoption by January 1st. That is very ambitious, and it sounds like you and your team have a lot of work ahead of you. But in the interim, in September 2021, you signed Administrative Order 2021-25, which generally directs the department to evaluate covered publication for covered facilities in overburdened communities in certain respects, consistently with the EJ law that the governor signed, including by holding a public hearing in a matter as required under the law. Are there any lessons learned thus far from this approach that can be incorporated into the rules? Absolutely. We've held quite a number of EJ public hearings under the administrative order that was intended to have applicants for facilities that would be covered by the environmental justice law 
once the rules are complete, to do the best they could to meet the spirit and intent of that law, even though the regulations are not yet effective. And I think what we've learned from that process is that applicants can indeed do that, that this is neither a economic development nor a business expansion killer, but by taking stock of what our impacts are upon our host communities, we can do better by them. And I think the administrative order process has showed us that. And I believe we'll continue to see that as the rule itself comes to be implemented once it's final. Without a doubt, New Jersey has been a clear leader with respect to advancing environmental justice. Are there any other ongoing initiatives in the state to advance environmental justice? Absolutely. First, I do just have to pause before I answer that to acknowledge the the sheer heart and work of my DEP colleagues here in New Jersey who have really poured every best effort into making these rules just and fair and working working their hearts out to to make sure that we're doing the best by our communities while also showing the regulated community that that economic development and environmental protection are not actually at odds with each other right that that is a false narrative that we've all been been told for far too long. And so I believe that the work that we're doing here in New Jersey is change making. It's it's going to feel too big, too fast, too soon for some, and it's going to feel too little, too slow, too late for others. It's intended to strike a better, more just balance in an already difficult regulatory terrain. And and I think the rule itself will be debated and contested and refined in the months and the years to come. And we'll find that that advocates and communities will append to it their hopes and their disappointments. And and some regulated entities will grumble. But I think more will meet its challenge to live their values of being an even better neighbor. And in the meantime, lawyers are probably going to build entire careers based on splitting its hairs. But but it, it will outlast us all, which is precisely why we do this hard, important work to, to leave our communities, this institution we serve and the environment we share better than we found them. And this EJ rule isn't the only place where we're doing that incredibly important work. We're looking at every single one of our programs systemically and asking ourselves the question of how we would do our work differently if to every mission statement in every program was appended the words and further the promise of environmental justice? How do we adapt our grant making to do more justice? How do we administer the programs that are untouched by this rule in a way that would further the promise of environmental justice? We can make a lot of change within the authorities we have to leave every community better than we found it. It's not that hard. It just takes will. So I agree that the 
work that you are doing is change making. And I'm one of those attorneys who is building their careers on trying to advance that uh, promise of environmental justice as well. Although I may come come at it from a slightly different angle than, than most. But um, in your position, you sort of had a, a, a broad perspective. You may have some insights into what's occurring around the country, indeed around the world. Do you have a sense of what, if any, impact the work you're, you and your colleagues in New Jersey are doing or having on other jurisdictions, both at the federal level and in other states? I don't think there's a question that all eyes are on New Jersey when it comes to issues of environmental justice. In, in good part because of, of this really impactful law that we're, that we're lucky to have. My colleagues in other states uh, will, will uh, often seem envious at the fact that we have this authority and we can move the ball in this way. And what I, what I always try to point out is that while we are fortunate as an environmental regulator to have this new authority, every environmental regulator in, in state and in, in federal institutions have foundational and specific media-based authorities that can be leveraged to do greater justice. We just have to think about our programs and our imperatives in an evolving way. And one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is the work that the Environmental Council of the States is doing on environmental justice, bringing together state environmental commissioners and secretaries from across the country, from different uh, political situations in order to develop strategies for doing greater justice together. And that work is, is happening, right? I'm learning from the state of Texas as they're learning from us. I'm learning from Michigan as they're learning from California. And in fact, we'll, we'll meet on these issues next week in the, the week of what we call the Environmental Council of the States step meeting in the summertime to talk about environmental justice and infrastructure and how we can help each other to develop best practices around these issues. And, and I'm really proud that I have such a collegial group of, of colleagues, again, from different backgrounds in a bipartisan fashion, there's ways to advance equity and environmental justice. Certainly, and I think that exchange of ideas and best practices is, is critical. Thank you so much for joining us today. We can't thank you enough for the time that you have spent with us. We greatly appreciate it. And before we sign off, do you have any closing thoughts or any additional points that you wish to make? One of the, the points you made, Julius, is, is how you as a, as a principal in an environmental law firm that invariably serves business clientele that you work to further the promise of environmental justice too. I, I know that to be true. And not just because I come from a big law firm world in prior parts of my career, but because part of what environmental lawyers do is to guide 
clients to solutions that better serve the environment and the communities in which our clients are located and that they serve. So I think that every environmental lawyer gets to be a part of doing this good in how we counsel clients to do the best good that they possibly can. So I appreciate that you do that work. So thank you. You are very welcome. I look forward to partnering with you in the future to work together to all achieve the same goal. Thank you again for your time and look forward to catching up soon. Thank you, Julius. Be well. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ground Truth. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities. Founded on the rule of law, and Beverage and Diamond, a national firm specializing in environmental law. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. To learn more about ELI, visit www.eli.org. For more on Beverage and Diamond, visit bdlaw.com.